Moncrief on News Talk. Brought to you by Avant Money. Think you're getting the best value from your bank? Think again. As we always do on a Monday, we have someone in to have a look at uh, some of the stories from the weekend that caught their eye today. It's uh, Professor of Modern Irish History at UCD, Jermot Ferreter. Jermot, good afternoon to you. How are you, Sean? Nice uh, to be here. Uh, the protocol thing is still rumbling on. The, do you think it's kind of, do you have a sense that maybe it's not as severe as perhaps is being projected? There's a lot of grandstanding going on. There's no doubt about that. I don't believe that they cannot come up with a solution that will allow the DUP to face to, to save some face uh, and also perhaps tinker with the arrangement, which obviously has problems. But when you see the congressional delegation arriving in, in mm. Ireland, uh, it's another indication, I suppose, of, of the endurance of the inability for these things to be solved locally. You know, and of course, this has all sorts of, of different international dimensions now. Um, but there is grandstanding going on. That, you know, I mean, there's a power game going on within the Tory party as well, uh, mm. which is part of it. Uh, and then you have, I was intrigued by those alleged comments of Liz Truss, the British Foreign Secretary in 2019, where she was very dismissive of the idea uh, of, of Brexit complicating things in Ireland uh, and referred to turnips. Yes. Uh, and a few, <laughs> you know, a few farmers with turnips in the back of their truck. And, you know, that f- for an Irish audience is a reminder of the endurance of another very uh, difficult uh, approach to Ireland on the part of the Tory uh, or insensitive uh, approach to Ireland on the part of the Tory party. Like it, it harks back to the punch cartoons of the 19th mm. century, you know, and it, there's a condescension and a snobby, snobbery there uh, that brings out your inner nationalist. There's no doubt about that. She hasn't confirmed or denied that she yes. said that, but it's very plausible, isn't it? Mm. Uh, and it's very believable. Um, so, you know, that is one one aspect to it. I mean, I'm very conscious that many people have asserted over the last week or two that Anglo-Irish relations are at their lowest ebb in a long, long time. And they are in a very difficult situation. There's no doubt about that. But we also have to remind ourselves of of really dark days in the 70s and the 80s. I remember reading the transcript of the phone conversation between the Taoiseach Jack Lynch and the British Prime Minister Ted Heath on the night of Bloody Sunday. You know, when you think of of the enormity of those events and what was at stake. Um, And there were difficult days in the 1980s as well. Uh, But, you know, Thatcher was somebody that the Irish government could do business with. For all of her... Um, status as a hate figure for for Irish Republicans and Nationalists. Um, The difficulty, I suppose, is uh, what goes on behind the scenes is much more important. Like, we can talk about grandstanding Mm. and the rhetoric from the leaders and the well-known politicians. Progress in Anglo-Irish relations comes about as a result of what is done quietly. Yes. By the civil servants, by the diplomats. It's, It's all about increments. You know, can we edge towards some kind of a consensus? Uh, the problem at the moment is that is not going on, uh, I fear, to the extent that it needs it, it, it needs to go on. And having said that, the relationship between leaders is important mm. and there isn't really any trust there, obviously. How can you trust someone like Boris Johnson? Well, that's, that is you a know? problem. Yeah. That's, that's a huge problem. And, you know, it was interesting. He wrote a very long piece for uh, the Belfast Telegraph there last week and he brought up this issue of the strategic interest of the UK in Northern Ireland. And you remember that hugely important statement from 1990 that Northern Ireland had no selfish strategic or economic interest in Northern Ireland. That allowed an awful lot of things to happen subsequently. The Downing Street Declaration, the momentum Mm. in the 1990s that ultimately led to the 1998 agreement. Um, And what Johnson's saying now, of course, Northern Ireland is of great strategic importance. Now, why is it of strategic importance? Because he wants to present himself as the saviour of the Union and the uh, of the Union. Um, And you have to wonder 
at the same time, how much interest is there in Northern Ireland? Well, that's the, that's the thing that baffles me. Yeah. His constituency isn't in Northern Ireland. They they, they no, know little and care less about absolutely, Northern but Ireland. He's looking at tools that are useful for him in a, a bigger battle, you know, mm. which is about being able to say that I have finally done this. You know, I've got Brexit done uh, and I have managed to stand up to the EU um, and, you know, it's been referred to Northern Ireland as not just a problem child, you know, but a pawn and even a hostage. You know, and they did a survey of the Tory party in 2019 and 59% of them said that they would rather see Brexit done uh, than for Northern Ireland uh, to, to remain in the United Kingdom. If yeah. it came to a choice mm. between the two, that's very, very revealing. Um, but there's no consistency, obviously, with Boris Johnson. And again, the DUP are depending on Johnson to make the move. But they don't trust him either. Well, why the hell would they trust him? You know, but where else can they go? Yeah. You know, and this is the dilemma for them. And I mean, this isn't about ignoring unionists, obviously. That's not going to get us anywhere. And and history would show mm. uh, that there has to be dialogue open. And they will talk to these American politicians as they come over. But I fear there's some exaggeration on the part of the American politicians as well uh, that they can veto any possible Anglo-American free trade agreement. You know, it mm. might not be as straightforward as that. Uh, but you do have at the moment what John Peck who was a British ambassador in Ireland in the early 1970s, referred to as brawling in public. And this is a part <laughs> of the history of Anglo-Irish relations. You have that. Another, another British ambassador in Ireland, Alison Goodison, referred in the 1980s to a raw nerve that never sleeps. And what had happened was that the raw nerve was at rest for quite some time. You know, mm. there was an awful lot of positive rhetoric uh, 10, 12 years ago about Anglo-Irish relations at an all-time high. We had the Queen's visit and that sense that, you know, we had finally come to a, a mature stage where we were diplomatic equals uh, and there could be uh, respect afforded. Of course, Brexit upturned all of that and the consequences are going to play out over a very long time. You know, what's the big problem at the moment is that the British government is sending out completely conflicting signals because Boris Johnson says, no, we don't have to rip up the Northern Ireland Protocol, but we need to fix it. Whereas Liz Truss is essentially saying, I'm going to bin it. Yeah. I'm going to introduce legislation to bin it. Now, that legislation if and when it's introduced, is going to have to snake its way through Parliament as well. And it just means it'll be drawn out. It'll be a very long drawn out. And we're coming into, of course, summer recess as well within politics and, and, and in Northern Ireland. So it must be incredibly frustrating. Uh, but for all of the focus on what happened in 1998 and the Belfast Agreement, the Good Friday Agreement, we do need to start wondering now if parts of that need to be revisited. You yeah. know, in are, terms of uh, uh, how elections are, are, are organised. Yeah, and how people Ireland. are designated and mm. whether or not it can do justice to the new shape of Northern Ireland politics. Now, you know, for all of the talk of change in the Alliance Party, there's still a lot of continuity in Northern Ireland politics. Mm. You have to acknowledge that. But, you know, boxing them into those designated boxes of, of, of orange or green doesn't seem to fit the new shape of Northern Ireland politics, but also even in relation to a lot of ambiguity. I'd often say to students of history, let's look at what's in the document. Let's also look at what's not in the document, which can be as important. All of the talk of a border poll uh, in recent years, it doesn't actually in the agreement spell out what a Northern Ireland Secretary of State will be guided by in relation to whether or not he or she should call a border poll. Yeah. It just says that, you know, if, if, if the Northern Ireland Secretary feels that there might be a majority in favour of United Ireland, he or she can call a border poll. But how do you actually do that? Uh, you know, what, what yardstick do you use? You know, what's the measurement for whether or not there is either an appetite or, mm. or demonstrable uh, desire 
uh, for a border poll. So I there's imagine, a lot of ambiguity. Yeah. Well, yeah. It's just as dangerous to include some sort of criteria in, in, in well, a, well, like the, if, it's, if it's 50% plus one, that's probably yeah. not going to help anyway. And I mean, that's a majority. And of yeah. course, those uh, who have, have, have looked at this question of, of how it might work insist that, well, it either has to be a majority or it doesn't. And if that's 50 plus one, so be it. Whereas other, others would argue, given the history uh, of, of Northern Ireland, that that <laughs> is not going to work. So you have all of these different issues uh, being examined again. Uh, the difficulty at the moment, I suppose, is just dealing uh, with a British Prime Minister who, you know, doesn't have any consistency ideologically or intellectually um, in, in how he approaches these issues. Uh, and he's a complete messer. Mm. And while all that happens and, and Liz Truss's legislation, as you say, could take God knows how long to, uh, to get through the Houses of Parliament, uh, there will be no Stormont Assembly. No. Do you think that actually has an effect on Northern Well, Ireland? I've been talking to people in Northern Ireland about that over the years because you'd be up and down for various academic mm. things and, and, and different um, events. And what always strikes you when you're up there is that people are just getting on with it because they're used to stalemate. Yeah. And they're used to the politicians not working. Now, they are getting more and more annoyed, uh, particularly when it comes to politicians being paid uh, at a time when they're not taking their seats. And then some would argue quite convincingly, of course, and quite justifiably that they can't take their seats because, you yeah. know, one portion of politicians have a veto uh, over it. And yet, Northern Ireland can still function. Northern Ireland still does function. I mean, we've had these very prolonged standoffs and stalemates before uh, and, and, and people get on with it. But it does breed a, a cynicism, of course, uh, <laughs> about the inability uh, of them to, to, to resolve differences. Um, I suppose what, what really has changed fundamentally is, is the loss of unionist supremacy in Northern Ireland and that for them psychologically is, is, is hugely difficult mm. uh, but it's also something they have to come to terms with and their politics has to adapt and even listen to Doug Beatty who would see himself as a more progressive uh, unionist as, as leader of the Ulster Unionist Party which is now a much smaller entity obviously but he's talked about the need for an agile unionism yeah, you know, the yeah. idea of agility within unionism uh, particularly for a certain cohort of, of, of unions <laughs> from the DUP uh, is not something they can countenance either but no I think that's always very interesting that you go up um, to a place like Belfast and things are ticking along yeah you know and you'd, yeah. w- you'd wonder also, like, does the DUP have a long game in mind at all? Absolutely than, not. Let's just no. stall things no, as it, long it, as we can. No, that's a very important question. It doesn't have a long game. And that's where it's been outwitted, really, by Sinn Féin, who can be quite sophisticated in how they approach the, the, the long mm. game. You know, and you can see even with how they handled the recent election. You know, you don't talk up the border poll in the middle yeah. of an election and you focus on other things. And they're quite strategic. They've always been strategic in how they've approached uh, politics. Uh, whereas the unionists don't have that same uh, sophistication when it comes to mapping out their strategies or their alternatives at different stages. Uh, and that's why they're in kind of permanent crisis mode. And then the, the rhetoric and the language that they used, mm-hmm. that they use is infected by that. Uh, so everything is highly dramatic and everything is, is, is very emotive. Um, and, you know, wrap around that the question of the future of the union, you know, and y- you can see how they will insist that this isn't just about the Northern Ireland Protocol, this is about the future of the Union. But that assumes, of course, uh, that there are those who want to take them into the bosom uh, of the Union. And there's no evidence of that. Yeah. Uh, Speaking of emotive, uh, it's 20 years since Saipan, as people all know that the media's been full of it over the weekend. Are you sick of this? Uh, When did we start uh, deciding that 20th anniversaries were the anniversaries to go big on? (laughs) Could we not have waited for 25 years? Um, I know I got a bit tired of it over the weekend because I feel we're just going over very uh, well-trodden ground and 
like everyone else uh, at the time, it was it was hugely captivating, and I was mm. captivated by it. Sure, how could you not have been captivated by it? Um, but I was intrigued that Roy Keane is still being referred to as an enigma, and he's still being referred to as the iconic Roy Keane. When people are called iconic, they usually symbolise something. You know, mm. I don't know what Roy Keane actually symbolises. I remember at the time he was supposed to symbolise a refusal to tolerate shoddy standards yes. that he stood for this level mm. of professionalism and high standards and I could buy into that to a degree but then it became all about Roy and that became problematic why should it have become all about Roy if this was supposed to be about the welfare of the team and, mm. and the quality of the game and I got a bit cynical about that and Roy used to always say that stupidity is, is doing the same thing uh, and expecting different results but he kept doing the same thing by writing these bilious autobiographies you know, in his forties, <laughs> where he was settling scores and, and venting his spleen. And and um, you know, for somebody who claimed that it wasn't supposed to be about him, it was supposed to be about the football, it was supposed to be about the game and the standards. Um, it always came back to Roy. I remember when Martin O'Neill was manager. Mm of the soccer team and you wouldn't have thought he was manager because Roy was his assistant manager yeah. but every time Martin O'Neill came to a press mm. conference the only questions he was asked about was about Roy you know uh, so Roy is that kind of character you know as he says himself he has a self-destruct button uh, and I think part of what went on in Saipan was about his self-destruct button as well as well as having legitimate concerns Still uh, though and this must be depressing for a historian in, in uh, uh, 20 years on from Saipan people probably the ordinary punter would have a detailed memory of all of that say in 20 years time what will they remember about uh, the, the Brexit protocol probably not that much Well this is where perspective comes into it doesn't yes. it you know? but you see we, we can't historians can't legislate for what chimes with people or what resonates with them or what they remember you know we've no control over that and why the hell should we you mm. know this is about how people remember and what they remember, you know, and it's part of the, uh, the, the the popular culture of the time. And we may well look back at a time when we did actually qualify uh, for these international <laughs> soccer uh, tournaments. And there was a great sense of, of, of national occasion. Um, but I did hear someone over the weekend refer to this Saipan controversy uh, as one of, one of the most important events in modern Irish history. Uh, here. Yeah, that's true. Uh, I've only got a minute left, though, German, but uh, you did uh, Best Movie of the Year. Or best on, Irish movie of the year. On Colleen Kuhn. Yeah, yeah. I thought it was mesmerising. Yeah. It's one of the best Irish films uh, I've seen. One of the best films I've seen in a long time. Alan Bennett and Carrie Crowley. Uh, and Catherine Clinch, this extraordinary child actor. Uh, very powerful, an hour and a half. They pack yeah. an awful lot into it. It's, it's mesmerising. And I think it's quite a breakthrough for Irish language cinema as well. Yeah, no, Esther McCarthy, our film reviewer, was saying the same thing. But there's a bit of it seems to be a golden age for Irish uh, language yeah. cinema. And for moment. anyone who grew up in the 70s or 80s, um, they'll really be able to relate to a lot of it, I think. Yeah. Jeremy, thanks a million as ever. Always a pleasure. Jeremy Ferris, there you are listening to the Moncrief Show on News Talk. Going to take a break. After that, is insurance threatening thatching? Moncrief. Brought to you by Avant Money. Think you're getting the best value from your bank? Think again. Weekdays at 2pm on News Talk. We can all see how conflict affects energy prices. More than ever, we need to be mindful of how we use energy. By reducing your use, you can save money and lessen the impact. Here's how. Use your timer and thermostat to heat your home and hot water to the temperature you need. Use appliances efficiently and, where possible, outside the peak hours of 4 to 7 p.m. Consider walking, cycling or public transport for short journeys. Drive at lower speeds where safe to do so. Government advice and supports are available for homes and businesses to help you meet this challenge. 
Find out more at gov.ie forward slash reduce your use. Brought to you by the Government of Ireland.